0: America Meditating Radio, a show for everyone to learn more about this amazing thing called life. Hi everyone, welcome to The Next Normal in collaboration with America Meditating Radio. I'm your host, Sister Jenna. I don't know what it is, but there's something in the air. Just the other day, yesterday, I had three students that were all rushed into the emergency room. One was in Europe, one was in D.C., another one was over here. And it was weird because that weekend, I was in silence. And I wondered how, you know, when you go into silence, stuff from down below just comes up to the surface. And for me, it always brings new realizations. But I was very surprised at all the factors that were swirling around me And as much as I wanted to stay in my introspection, in my cocoon, there were situations that were bigger than my desire to stay in silence and then I had to be of service outside of myself. And so things are changing and things are moving rapidly. But even in the world of corporate, to what extent has corporate really began to understand the deeper part of ourselves? How do we find joy going into work and being productive employees or citizens of a company, a city, a state, even a family. Situations are coming in the way that they're punching you up. Stuff's hitting your heart, you're getting distracted by your ultimate purpose or goal and before you know it, you lost sight as to, hey, why am I here? What's my purpose really? We might need a little bit more zen. Today I've got a really special guest on because many of us would agree That Today's business environment requires a new kind of leader, one with empathy and flexibility, but how? How do you bring this sort of clarity and vision to your business? In his new book, The Zen Executive, Gems of Wisdom for Enlightened Leadership, Jim Blake, our special guest, looks at practical spirituality as the foundation for good leadership. So drawing from his experience as CEO of the 130-year-old spiritual nonprofit Unity World Headquarters and a lifetime of corporate leadership, Jim joins us to discuss how to lead teams, companies, and communities while maintaining alignment with your personal principles and integrity. Jim, before we dive right into our conversation about your new book, The Zen Executive, thank you for joining us today. I'm so happy to be with you.
1: Thank you so much. It is truly an honor and privilege to be with you.
0: Well, tell us a little bit about the Unity and its mission, because some people might not know about it. We've got a very close friend with Unity, Reverend Sylvia Sumter, so I know a lot about it. And if I wasn't a Brahma Kumaris, I would become a Unity member. (laughs) So tell us a little bit.
1: (laughs) So it was founded in the late 1800s by a couple, Charles and Myrtle Fillmore co-founders, and each of them had experiences where they were able to heal themselves through a change in their thoughts and how they experienced the world and how they interpreted spirituality. And believe it or not, they had studied quite a bit of Eastern philosophy. So They brought what they considered the best of each of the worldly traditions together in a set of principles, and they actually called it unity to represent that, that they had brought these ancient spiritual principles from all these different traditions and put them together in unification, if you will, under one set of teachings. And out of that began to grow study groups and over 128-year-old prayer ministry. So there's a prayer ministry. There is a prolific publishing arm. And then there is a large campus here just outside of Kansas City that's 1,200 acres with a state-of-the-art hotel, walking trails, golf course, Airbnbs. It's got one of the largest in the region and all Italian architecture. So red tile roofs and just a really, really beautiful place. They had started purchasing land as a retreat for employees and ultimately they moved campus out here. You may be familiar with the flagship magazine, which is called Daily Word. It's a daily devotional. Unity is a non-denominational, as you mentioned, spiritual nonprofit. It was couched in Christianity because that was the tradition of the West at the time. But the founder, Charles, is quoted as saying he believes these principles can help Buddhists be a better Buddhist or practice better Hinduism or be a better yoga practitioner. They're that universal. So that's a little bit about unity.
0: They were way ahead of their time. I mean, now when you hear people talking about changing your destiny by changing your thoughts, they had that going on from the 1800s, which was not easy to communicate to people who were so indoctrinated in the religiosity of life and maybe afraid of exploring new frontiers and I agree the importance of getting information from the East I think completes our narrative with whatever religious or spiritual tradition we choose to embark upon. So tell us a little bit about you. I mean you've said that you have spent your career and life with one foot deeply rooted in seeking and learning spiritual truth, and the other in corporate leadership. That's quite a balance. How did you balance these both parts?
1: Well, it was an interesting journey. I wasn't raised around a lot of religion. The only thing that was really religious in my family was that my mother, from the ages of about five to about 10, religiously put me on a Sunday school bus to the local Baptist Sunday school. So my first exposure to religion was Baptist here in the Midwest. And so there was a lot of fire and brimstone and things of that nature. And so I spent a lot of time sort of in fear as a young person around making sure I was doing the right things. But when I got to college, I experienced my first world religion course, and it really just blew my mind. To be honest, I was struck by the beauty of truth and beauty of the different connections I had with all of the different traditions. And so it really sort of sparked this, I wanna know more. For about the next 10 years, I did just that. I studied a little bit of Buddhism. I read the Bhagavad Gita and learned about Hinduism. I started a yoga practice and learned about the eight-wind path of yoga. And so the more I got into these things, the more they began to overflow into all the other areas of my life. And the more I got clear internally and more healthy internally, the more I began to notice sort of the things that I thought were not right in the corporate world, if you will, and some of the roles that I had. And so really that work on the personal side began to influence me professionally and ultimately culminated in this book and a lot of ideas that I developed because largely what I learned, especially early on in my corporate experience, was the things in leadership and culture that did not work. And that was really profound for me. It really had struck me that there has to be a better way. When I mean, we've got all these great teachings from all over the world, when they're practiced appropriately, it can be life-changing. And so why do we continue to compartmentalize this big portion of our work, which we call our profession, from our spiritual side? I mean, it's almost like we're completely different people. And so I began this journey to try to figure out how and if we could merge the two and what that might look like.
0: Beautiful. And what were some of the things that you had recognize it just weren't working anymore after you became clear?
1: So I'll give you a perfect example. And this was probably the moment, the light bulb moment for me in this whole journey is I was working for a particularly challenging boss. He was a command and control leader, which means he had to make all the decisions and no one really knew how to do anything except for him. And so it was really a controlling relationship. And I was in the technology world for 25 years of my career. So I was often on call on weekends and I was at home on a Sunday afternoon. My phone rang. I looked over and saw it was him and I had a physical reaction. I felt my heart sink. I felt my body tense up and it was just in that moment, it was only a few seconds, but it seemed like it lasted for a long time for me that I realized, wow, I am having a physical reaction to working with this gentleman. How unhealthy can that be? What is the impact that's mm-hmm. having on my body every day of every week that I continue to struggle to work for this guy? That was really the moment that I began to understand how what we do in leadership and at work influences every aspect of someone's life. And so when you lead through fear and intimidation and command and control, You're setting someone up where they're in a constant state of anxiety, afraid to make a mistake. They're not going to bring forth creative ideas because they're wondering when they're going to get yelled at next. Well, they leave the office with that. It impacts their relationship with their family. It impacts road rage, perhaps, on the drive home. It impacts how they interact with pets. And so if you look at that from the opposite perspective and say, what if I have a leadership style that lifts people up, that makes them feel seen and heard and appreciated, well, that also leaves a ripple effect. So now they go out into the world in a much different mental and emotional state than they do in the opposite, construct yeah.
0: Beautiful. You know, sometimes I think we do struggle with being a balanced leader because we ourselves are learning a lot about our strengths and our limitations in leadership roles. Have you noticed that for yourself too? And there are times in which you do want to keep uplifting. Have you ever found yourself, and I'm speaking at a personal level, when you got so attached to your assignment that sometimes what didn't get communicated was really the message to help the team to move forward, but instead the team picked up your emotions and didn't hear a word you said?
1: (laughs) That can also happen. That's very perceptive of you. and. That requires a particular level of self-awareness and emotional intelligence, but that does indeed and can happen.
0: So describe for us what a Zen executive actually looks like. What are the qualities?
1: I will allude back to some of the things I said. I think it's someone who has the self-awareness and emotional intelligence to really understand how they impact the lives of those that are on their team and can lead comfortably and competently with empathy and compassion and an understanding that, We're all in this thing called life. We're all going to have painful and difficult circumstances. And when you can be supportive and compassionate and hold people up during those times, doesn't mean you don't hold people accountable. You still hold people accountable. But you can do it without yelling and screaming. You do it in a compassionate and professional way and with courtesy. So I think someone who really understands the impact that they can have by creating the environment that I talked about earlier, when it's uplifting and supportive, the data will tell you that when people feel that way, they are far more productive than when they are operating under an aura of fear and intimidation. Engagement, if you treat people that way, they're automatically engaged because they feel like they're working for an organization that values them. So they're automatically engaged. And so I think that's the gist of it.
0: Nice comments. So your book, it includes quite a bit about self-care from exercise and sleep to meditation we don't usually see that in a business book so why was it important for a leader to practice self-care
1: for some of the same reasons and it's a disconnect that to me now seems logical and i'm surprised i didn't connect it earlier and some of the rest of us didn't connect it earlier but i like to use the example of a professional athlete The a professional athlete to perform at their peak they do all of these things they have chefs they do training they have supplements they really take care of themselves So at the moment where they have to perform, they can be at peak performance. Well, the same can hold true for us and should just by doing the basics that you mentioned, sleep and hydration and the right food and a little bit of exercise, and even finding some sort of spiritual practice puts us in a position to react and respond to the world far better than if we're sleep deprived in an unhealthy state from a body perspective, stressed out and anxious, you see where I'm going here? So then we start to make decisions out of an emotional state or an unhealthy state where we're not centered. We sort of take that for granted in our world where we think working 70 hours is better when it's not. You're not going to make your best decisions after about 36 to 40 hours. If you are not in a healthy emotional state, you're probably not going to make your best decisions. I think we've all made decisions out of emotion that we can look back and say, I somewhat regret that. And so self-care is so important in terms of getting yourself to a place where you're physically, spiritually, and emotionally content, where you don't feel like you're missing anything, that your cup is full. You cannot pour from an empty cup, whether that's your own work or as a leader. And so well rested you are, the more balanced you are in terms of work-life balance. Actually, the greater leader you're going to be and the more productive you're going to be.
0: I love and you were saying that you don't know why it even took you so long. I had the same thought this morning where I was having these realizations and I was like, What made you take so long to get that? So some of the self care that you've written about in the book, physical in some, is of the inner work. But many people have had bosses who weren't terribly self reflective. What kind of inner work do you suggest
1: for these leaders? There's two things. I'll just say this. First of all, I make the effort. So when I'm in a situation where I'm dealing with someone who's not very self-reflective, doesn't have any clue in terms of some of the things that we're talking about here, I will try to bring it in another ways. So if I can find a training that somewhat relates to some of these principles or practices and bring it in under the guise of this will make the team more productive, usually leaders are open to that. They're open to anything that someone brings forth that they think will make the team more productive. Yeah. You can speak it in that way. Book clubs, same sort of thing. But I will also say there comes a time where, at least for me, for instance, once you awaken to the fact that this is an unhealthy place for you to be and you've done everything you can to try to maneuver it in a way to see some things change and it doesn't, you may have to really consider, is this the right place for me?
0: That's a hard one sometimes because you build relationships over the years and you came in because the mission really spoke to your core And sometimes it's not really the whole organization, it's just one or two people. And I would question, are these two people or this person worth such a big decision in your life? And I think many leaders are sometimes not able to discern that. Or even some employees are not able to discern that this is maybe just one or two people, but I can make this much more of a better organization or mission by putting the best of myself. And then that will take care of me as an employer. Yeah, That's a whole other conversation there.
1: That's a really, really great point. In addition to making those sorts of suggestions, you can just model. And when yeah. you begin to model some of these things, it will catch on with others. And in some cases, you become an inspiration or you become an example that other people want to follow. And so you can almost say yeah. grassroots response to some of these things. Whereas it becomes noticeable that the leader is not a clear fit. Sometimes change can occur that way as well.
0: Yeah, but also the leader can learn so much from the model of that employee. Yeah, I've seen it with myself. We had a young guy here from India. He stayed with us for about six months because he was on a a visiting visa. And the memorial that he has left behind still we're reaping the fruits of that. I mean, everything he touched just worked. And I could see how much I was learning just watching him and seeing how he was so proactive in just getting the assignment done. And that was just so moving that it taught me a lot about even my own leadership abilities and areas that I lack. I come into these relationships where I say, I want to trust everyone that they have recognized the mission here is to uplift humanity and to reveal God's light. And so that's just there, you know. So sometimes you've, forget that. Well, not everybody will see that. So what can I do to contribute? And what do I need to do to uplift my role as a leader? And that's sometimes a hard one, because you have to discern between the role, the ego, the truth, the gifts, the specialities, and also the surrender.
1: Very well put.
0: And you just let go. So you say that the leader's self-care both in and out affects everyone else in the organization. You've mentioned that. And I see that. I see where if you're bringing to work your issues, it messes up everyone. What do you do when you've got one of those days and you can see clearly the boss ain't having it. He's not in a good mood today or she's not in a good mood. How would you suggest somebody at work should kind of handle that situation?
1: I've learned over time in my experience that transparency is really the best way and in some cases people are just unconscious to how they're showing up just from a human to human perspective and you're really centered in the heart space when you bring this forth if you can approach them and say hey it seems like you may be a little stressed out is everything okay is there anything i can do to support you i mean i know you're going up the org chart here but your bosses are people too and when mm-hmm. you respond to whatever they're having happen with that sort of empathy and compassion and just to reach forward as a helping hand, sometimes it will trigger the awareness. Oh, I didn't know I was showing up that way. Or, Oh, I didn't know this was impacting me. It's a moment of awakening for them to shift their behavior once they become aware of it. And just from a human to human perspective, it's the right thing to do when you see someone struggling just to reach out and say, Hey, can I help here? Is everything okay? It goes a long way for people.
0: Yeah. That's where that humility and, Self honesty plays such a big role in really balancing and valuing not only your inner relationship with self and God, but your relationship with everyone else around you. It can't be hidden. I love our time together, isn't this sweet? It is.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Now you've said that meditation is absolutely worth the time and that it's the secret of productivity and creativity. Can you tell us more about your experience with meditation?
1: Sure. So A little bit about me. I am a perfectionist. If I'm going to do something, I want to make sure I'm doing it the right way. I had an initial stint here at Unity where I was the CIO and vice president of operations. And so I was around a lot of people who were immersed in prayer and meditation practices. I wasn't yet practicing. I didn't understand the value. It seemed like it was a lot of time consuming effort and I had a lot to do. I had a lot of responsibility at the time. But finally. A couple of mentors convinced me that I needed to start a practice. So I ordered 17 to 20 books on meditation. (laughs) I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I ordered a lot of books and I I wanted to get it right. And what I (laughs) learned is, first of all, there is no right way to meditate. There are certainly different techniques around the globe, but there's no right way. And oh, by the way, meditation doesn't necessarily mean sitting in the silence. That's very effective for some people. But for others, they can find the same meditative effect by going for a walk, by gardening. Others find it on the yoga mat. Some people find it in exercise. So whatever that is that sort of gets you to that place where you're not trying to stop your thoughts, but your mental chatter is able to subside and go to the background, okay? So you stop just hearing that constant monkey mind that we all have. Whatever can get you to that space, That's the space you're trying to achieve. And here's why. When we are constantly living in our thoughts and thought patterns about the past, about the future, about what we're going to do next, about whether or not the shirt looks good on me or about what Bill said to me last night, you're not present to the moment and you're not creating any space for anything new. So you're completely occupying the mind and spirit. But when you can get to a place where you can find some sort of stillness, whatever that practice looks like, and create an opening where that chatter sort of goes to the background. Now you've created a space, and it's in this space is where inspiration can come, new ideas can come, you've created an opening. All I can tell you is that's the part that is the most powerful and the most magical because you'll have an increased frequency in aha moments and in inspiration and guidance, and not just in the moment that you're meditating. They start to begin to show up more frequently in your day-to-day activities, because you've created some space where you've quieted the mind and opened yourself up to the inspiration and inherent intelligence of the universe. And those ideas and inspirations then begin to contribute to make you more productive and more successful in everything you're trying to do. Does that make sense?
0: It does, because in my teachings of Yoga Meditation by the Brahma Kumaris, I've realized that the whole focus of its effort and its mission is to unearth those deep-rooted karmic experiences that are holding the soul back, those stories, those emotions, those experiences. But then if you can open them up, release them, let them go and find some space in you, you can do a lot more. But when you keep hoarding these emotions, you're like, oh God, another day. Uh, what Noah is there to do? And then you blame the whole world for things not working out for you. Or you make a million excuses and all of that says, I'm so heavy with the burden of my own choices. Please help me. But, you know, there's something that I loved about the book where you actually talk about a mission statement. So what's the significance of a mission
1: statement? I mean, is it the same as setting
0: an intention?
1: It is indeed, but you're setting it at a collective level. And so... This is a little bit about one of those sort of where corporate best practices and some spiritual tools and resources intersect. Lots of us have worked at organizations where they have a mission statement and it's 46 sentences long and we can't really remember it and (laughs) we read it when we first get there and then it goes and sits on a shelf. And I argue that organizations have an opportunity to create a short, compelling, compelling Motivating and inspirational mission statement. If you can really connect with the organization's why and why they're there and create it in the form of a short and memorable mission statement, it changes everything because what happens is now you've got something that's bigger than all of us as individuals that we can all get underneath and get behind. And secondly, it's a collective affirmation. So if you're familiar with the practice of affirmation, affirmations are tools that we use to sort of change Two things. It stops a flow of mental chatter that may not be healthy for us. So we can use an affirmation to sort of change that and affirm something better for ourselves. Or when we're trying to change something in our belief about ourselves, we can use affirmations to sort of change that. So when you have an affirmative mission statement, now you have the energy of not only yourself, but everyone in your organization is moving in the direction of this affirmation. So energetically, now you're all moving in the same direction. And if you make it compelling enough, you can use it as a touchstone. You can use it as a touchstone for the decisions you make. So if you're going to make a big decision about a new investment opportunity or a new line of business, you can go back to that mission statement and say, does this really align with what we're trying to do in the world? And so it becomes your touchstone or your guiding light in terms of direction, as well as sort of the inspirational force behind you and all those that you serve with.
0: I love that. We have this touchstone phrase, when I change, the world changes. And I keep thinking of that, that it's so true. That's why I study the spiritual practice that I do. I want the world to be better. And if I don't get better, how is this world going to be better? If you don't get better, there's no hope for our humanity. Just look at the direction it's going down. And you just realize, I've got to change my ways. I've got to change things in me. Not that it's bad but it can be better. Do you know what I mean?
1: I do, 100%. And when you change those things in yourself, you also then change the way you see the world and you yeah. change the way you respond to the world. And so if you're a generally yeah. negative person, you notice that, you begin to change it. Now all of a sudden you stop seeing all the negative things and all of a sudden you have an awareness of the positive things that are happening around you. And so it's also a perspective shifting experience as well, I think.
0: I'm smiling because I remember a student that came many years ago to the positive thinking course and she followed a friend of hers and one of the comments she made was, you know, I'm just following my friend because I'm very positive. So By the time we were done giving the positive thinking course, it was a four-week course. The same girl came up and said, oh my God, I'm just so negative. I had no idea that I was so negative. (laughs) So even when we're in our mode of negativity, we think we're being so positive and so right, but then if you look around at your life, If things aren't in order, it should be a sign you're not doing something right. There are some people, let's say, for example, someone who's interested in the practices that you lay out in the book, but it's not necessarily the boss. How do you suggest they introduce these perspectives into the organization?
1: Well, I think you touched on it earlier. Mm -hmm. The primary path is to model it because when people see other successful people or other healthy people, they want to know, how are you doing that? How did you get there? what do you do? And so you have an opening and an opportunity then to share some of these teachings and principles and practices. But again, modeling is probably the primary way. Once there's an opening to maybe discuss or bring some other tools and resources to the table, you can do that.
0: Let's talk about failure. In the book, you've got a section on failure and handling crisis. Is there a secret for that?
1: Well, there's no secret for failure. What I'm encouraging people to do is change their perspective of failure. And I'm really grateful to Silicon Valley for this in the sort of early 2000s and forward. They helped break down this stigma of failure. For so long in Western culture, when you failed, you were then labeled a failure. And then people took that on. And I failed at this, and so I'm a failure. And there was this whole big derogatory thing around it. And coming from tech, I've spent my whole life innovating and automating. So finding new ways to do things. And when you're innovating and when you're willing to try new things, so instead of letting things become stagnant, grow old and constantly challenging, looking for constant improvement, you're constantly innovating. Well, not everything you innovate is going to succeed, but that does not mean you are a failure. It just means that that particular effort was not successful. And so, when I talk about Silicon Valley, they had this whole sort of set of means and movement that erupted talking about fail fast, fail forward. And there were lots of books and business books running about it, saying if you're not failing, you're not innovating enough. And So that really helps sort of bring it to the forefront. And I just really want to lift that up and invite people to consider that what they're saying is really the way to approach failure. You're going to do, you're going to innovate. You're going to try some things that don't work if they fail. Take what you can from the experience and apply it to a new iteration, or that may be the sign that this just wasn't going to work out. But either way, you're just processing the information or the feedback you got from the experience, and you're figuring out how to move forward with that new information. It's nothing more than that. Does that make sense?
0: It does, you know, and I was thinking as you were talking a few days ago, I found myself saying, oh, I'm just a failure. I haven't been able to do this, do that, put in order. And then when I remembered putting my head on the pillar, I found myself saying, no, it's not that. You've been greatly successful. Everything you touch turns to gold just about. It's just it's not the time yet maybe for it to be the way that you're envisioning it. And there are certain tools that are still needed to nurture so that it can be on an automatic system of some sort. And it's so interesting the way that we define failure for me sometimes means it's just not time yet, but don't give up it's saying you just need a little more investment here in this area. Have you ever felt that or did you just walk away completely from it?
1: No. In fact, that is a really astute point because even in this role where I've come back to unity and was charged with how do you modernize or innovate with a 130 year old spiritual institution? Some of the things we've done or are doing were not our ideas. They had been tried before, but weren't successful. Why weren't they successful then? Well, Like you said, we didn't have the right people in place. We didn't have the right infrastructure. And so now those things have aligned and they've created much more fertile ground for some of these ideas and things to take root. And I would say that happens more times than I think people realize is that something that failed here, if you can approach it again at a later time, nine times out of 10, it'll be successful because the circumstances have changed and there's been sort of a greater foundation, if you will, created for it to emerge. So that's a really, really great observation and one that I think people should take note of.
0: So true. I love what you shared. So as we're getting close of our wonderful time together, tell me what's in Jim's future for maybe the next five years. What is he looking at for himself, the book, for Unity?
1: Well, I'm very happy with where I'm at right now in this role, and there's a lot of work still to be done. Much like you alluded to earlier, my work at Unity and my work around this book is all about helping people and helping the world just to be better. So any way I can do that, any way I can put forth these things that can help people have a more positive and productive experience of life, that's all I'm really about. And it's one of the reasons I'm here at Unity is because they have tools and resources that I think help people at a practical level. So none of the things that I talk about in the book are theoretical. It's very practical. It's things that you can do that will have an immediate impact on your experience. And with so much suffering in the world, everything from anxiety to addiction to illness, well, some of us are becoming caregivers unexpectedly, and we're all looking for ways to cope. And so organizations like Unity, many others, and many books out there, those things that can help people from a spiritual perspective navigate these challenges in a positive way, that's really what I'm about. So as long as I'm able to do that from this chair or from the content of the book, that's really what I think I'll be spending my time on for the foreseeable future.
0: Leave it for the website where we can find more information about you and your work.
1: Sure. So I am IamJimBlake.com is really focused on the book and what's in the book. And so you can get a really good feel for what it's all about. Unity.org has a lot of the spiritual tools and resources that I talk about that can help us deal with some of life's day-to-day challenges. And of course, you can also get the book on Amazon if you're subscribed there.
0: All right. Jim, it's been great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, we've gotten a lot of jewels, treasures that we can use for not only in the workplace, but even after. Nowadays, the journey is becoming so real for many of us. And It's something that jim kept saying again and again you know if you're really doing the work on the inside things can unfold for you in beautiful ways and many of us might not be focused more on that interior work on the self because everything is so external and it's just so much easier to see everything from the outside and determine your narrative from that but it's not true it's time for our zen it's time for us to look at a better balance of our inner and outer dimension and begin to bring that into the workplace, into our families, into our communities, into our environment. And I am so certain we'll create a golden-aged world, a world where people just won't hurt one another. So thank you so much for joining us today. And remember, no one can take away your happiness unless you give them permission. And I suspect that if we really dive deep inside, we might discover that we're really here to love each other the same. Take care, be well, and I'll see you again real soon. When I was asked by Sacred Stories Publishing to write a book on mystical divine experiences, initially I said, no, those are too private. But then when they came back again to urge me to do it, I said, hey, why not? It'll be of service, because over 25 co-authors would, have, would be joining me on this journey to share their own experiences. In meditation, intimate experiences with the divine through contemplating practices, you will read stories from our co-authors of a heartfelt clarity about a father's death, giving his son a new life. You will hear the story of a woman embracing her wounded inner child and healing herself. You will even hear stories about an inexplicable medical miracle and so much more. This book has a life of its own. You will learn how listening to your inner silence can help you overcome life obstacles and reclaim your spiritual power. I hope that you'll be able to dive deep into this and maybe even explore your own mystical and divine experiences for your life to change, for your life to become one that is completely full and rich of everything good. Enjoy, and thank you for looking into... Meditation, intimate experiences with the divine through contemplative practices. Restaurant wishes you happy holidays. Located at 6838 Piedmont in Gainesville, Virginia, we're a family owned restaurant and offer authentic Asian cuisine and sushi. Come, savor our delicacies made with love and enjoy the perfect ambiance. We look forward to seeing you there. I'm Sister Jenna. You've been listening to America Meditating Podcast.